All right, so I gave you guys a, uh, or I did a sheet. This is lesson three. So what we're doing, we're going through, we're going to take a year on Wednesday nights. Our goal is to finish this in a year. And we're going to go through the timeline of history and see what God is what God was doing in history. And while God was moving as it's recorded in his word, there are a lot of things that were happening not recorded in his word, but they're still his story. They're still his plan, his purpose being worked out. And so what we have in the scripture is God's record of God's dealing with His people. And in that record, specifically, we're looking at, and God reveals to us, how from creation, God brings through His plan, through His purpose, through everything that He's doing, God brings forth His Son, the Messiah. And the promise of that Messiah was seen in the very beginning, even in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3.15, where God says to the serpent who tempted the woman, and the man and the woman fell in the garden, and God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, and he will crush your head though you will bruise his heel. In Genesis 3.15, this is the first specific prophecy of the coming of Christ. And the biblical record is God's word, God's record given to us of how God dealt with, how he brought about his people, how he dealt with his people, how he brought about the Messiah, how he redeemed the world and redeemed his people, and not just his people who were the physical descendants of Abraham, but how he redeemed the world. Not every single human being in the world, if we believe that, we would be what's called universalist, that there would be no one that goes to hell. But we know that's not true because the Bible is very clear. Those who do not trust in Christ will not live eternally with Him. And so when Jesus said these words in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, He was specifically speaking about God loving every kind of human being. Because until that point in human history, in the history of God's people, it was the descendants of Abraham that were identified as God's people. And so we see this throughout God's Word. And so today on our look at the timeline, we're going to see when Abram or Abraham was born. So let's, let's go now to the timeline and let's look at where we left off. So we left off in the year 2242 B.C. 
2242 BC is when the Tower of Babel was built. That is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And remember, we talked about how God brought the great flood and he saved eight souls, and those eight souls then repopulated the world. And uh, people much smarter than me uh, have done the calculations. Uh, but if I'm not mistaken, and Roland, you may know this from being with Dr. Larry over the last few months, but if I'm not mistaken, the estimates are that there were probably over a billion people living on earth uh, at the time of the flood. And then people wonder, well, how could the earth come to the 8 billion mark if the flood only happened about 4,500 years ago? But when you actually do the math, um, it works out. I have a, I have a friend who... Um, he says, don't call me an atheist, call me an agnostic. Um, he said, I'm a, an agnostic because there's a lot of things in this world I can't explain. But he doesn't believe the biblical record. He doesn't believe that God created the heavens and the earth, and he certainly doesn't believe he did it in seven days. So he believes that the earth is hundreds of billions of years old and it's taken all of these hundreds of billions if not more years for us to get to the place that we are and I remember a number of years ago my friend is a scientist and he he loves to read and, and, and this was some of the work that he did when he did his work as a scientist he was a mathematician and I remember uh, I've known him for quite a while and um I remember uh, several years ago, many years ago in fact, when the Human Genome Project, now who knows what the Human Genome Project is? The Human Genome Project. So this is when man discovered the miracle that we call DNA. And this thing we call DNA that, that is building block, the natural building block of, of, of who we are, and in large part defines who we are, defines how tall we are, defines how short we are, defines our color of hair or whether we have any hair or not. Uh, the human genome, the, that project took place over many decades, and my friend uh, was, was involved in that. Um, uh, at least as a very interested um, observer. And he knew men who worked on this and helped develop the, the machines and the, the things that enabled them to do the calculations through computers to figure out the things that they're able to figure out now. I'll never forget, I was at his house one day and we were talking, he was telling me about the Human Genome Project and all of the work, the scientific work that's gone into this that has unlocked so much knowledge uh, for humanity. And I'm just listening to him. 
And he says, do you know what they discovered in their research of humanity and DNA and the human genome? He said, we know that at some point in history, he said, this is a scientific fact. There was a point in history when the population of the earth went down to virtually nothing. And the earth was almost, humanity almost became extinct. I said, really? I said, well, pray tell, what, what caused that? Well, we really don't know what caused it, but it, it's believed it could have been a giant asteroid that landed in the ocean that created a gigantic steam cloud and blotted out the sun and killed almost everybody and everything. But from that, and, and he's like, they're tracking this mathematically. So the population of the world, humanity, the history of humanity, they're tracking it mathematically based on DNA. And, and their, their mathematical model has, here we are, and they're working backwards. And as they work backwards from, you know, then 7 billion people, they get down to this, this funnel. He said, it's like a big funnel, like a big hourglass. And he said, all of a sudden, we get down to this point where, like, humanity almost disappears. <clears throat> and so they know humanity grew, and then it's choked off, and then it comes back to the present population that we have today. And I said, wow. I said, that's amazing. I said, science has proved that? Yes, sir. We've proven that. And he takes me, you know, sometimes talking to my friend is kind of like talking to Mr. Rao. He starts talking to me, and, and I'm like, I don't have a clue what you're talking about because you are so, you are so intelligent and, and so far over my head. And my friend is just telling me all of this stuff. And I said, I said, so you're telling me that, like, they've proven <clears throat> that humanity has grown to the place we are now, but, but it did it from this choke point where almost all the humans on earth died and then they repopulated the earth. Yes. I said, kind of like, you know, when the Bible talks about a great flood. Oh, no, now that's... Now, now we know every, every culture has a flood story. He said that's why the Hebrews had a flood story because everybody has a flood story. And I'm like, well, why do you think everybody has a flood story? Could it be that there was a flood? And so, here in Genesis, we see this record. And in 2242, based on the generations recorded for us in the Bible, we have the Tower of Babel. We talked about that last week. That's where... Man came together, the Bible says, with one language, with one speech, and they built this tower. It was, remember, a, a huge ziggurat. This, these are the precursors to our modern-day pyramids, and we still see ziggurats in Central America, South America. Why did they build them there? Well, because they built them here in this land called Mesopotamia. It wasn't called Mesopotamia there. It was... Sumer, it was that land between the Tigris and Euphrates River. It was that 
fertile area where they could grow crops, where they could repopulate the world after the flood. And the descendants of Noah and his three sons came from the east, and this is where they settled on the plain or the land of Shinar. And Nimrod builds and his people there, they build the Tower of Babel. Well, let's look at the record here from Genesis 11, 7 through 9. <clears throat> 2242 BC, come let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So we can look at a map today. I passed that around last week. And there, still today, in what we call modern-day Iraq, near the, city of the, the, the modern city of Baghdad, this is where Babylon was, this area called Sumer... It is called the cradle of civilization. And we know historically from archaeology, remember they had running water, hot and cold water, they had indoor toilets, they had roads, they had <clears throat> laws, they had governments, they had organization, they were skilled craftsmen and artisans. And where did they learn all of that? Well, they didn't learn it over billions of years coming from pond slime to monkeys to humans. They learned it because God created man with intelligence. And that knowledge existed before the flood and it was carried onto the ark. And, and man possessed that knowledge and repopulated and reestablished the ability to work with iron, to, to build and to do these things. And the problem here at the Tower of Babel is that they were rebelling against God because God's mandate was to do what? Not to congregate in one place and build a tower to protect yourself from God in a flood. They did not believe God. They didn't trust Him. So God confused the language so that man would obey Him and be scattered across the earth. And this is exactly what happened. From there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. A few years later, the city of Babel. So let's, it's, it's in Genesis chapter 10. It's in the chapter preceding the account of the Tower of Babel. But chronologically... Uh, Babylon is a city that existed that was founded there on the plain of Shinar. We know who founded it. The Bible tells us who did. And from that founding of Babel or Babylon, not just a city but a kingdom that would change the history of the world. And I would submit to you, even though you may not know it and realize it, but the Babylonians have impacted our history even today. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, tonight. But let me read to you um, concerning the city of Babel, the founding of Babel or Babylon. Uh, Nimrod was the name of the, 
fellow who founded Babel, which became Babylon, the city and the kingdom. Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 and 10. Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Iraq, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Shinar is that land between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Shinar, Sumer, Ur of the Chaldees. This is all of the same region. So from its founding all the way back to Nimrod, this region from which sprang the kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon. Now, Assyria and Babylon are going to come a few centuries later in our timeline. But Assyria and Babylon came out of this region, and it was this man, Nimrod, who's called a mighty hunter before the Lord. No one really knows what that means. Some people say, well, he liked to hunt animals, and he was a great hunter. Maybe. He probably did like to hunt animals, because that's how people lived and survived back then. But it could mean some other things as well. It could mean that he wasn't a very good guy. It could mean that he was a pretty uh, cruel and, um, you know, tyrant. And, and that he hunted not just animals, but he hunted men. Uh, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know that the people there did rebel against God. And there was a rebellion against God there at Babel, founded by Nimrod. And the kingdoms of Babylon in Assyria sprang out of that. And those kingdoms, though used by God, were enemies of God's people. So you can take from that what you want from history, but that, that is what we know from history. Jeremiah speaks of Babylon as an ancient nation. So Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 15, when Jeremiah pins these words, he's pinning these words somewhere around 600 to 5, 590 B.C. Somewhere around there. 610 to 590 B.C when he's pinning these words. And he says in Jeremiah 5.15, Behold, I will bring... This is a warning against Judah and God's people. He says, Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar. I want you to pay attention to this verse and tell me what might stand out to you here. Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, says the Lord. It's a mighty nation. It's an ancient nation. A nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Who is Jeremiah talking about here? Babylon. Who? Babylon. Yeah, the ba Babylonians. Babylon. 
Notice what he says. It's a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Interesting play on words, isn't it? I mean, how did Babylon get its name? They built a tower, and it was called Babel. And what does Babel mean? It means God confused their language. And at Babel, God purposefully confused their language so that they could not understand one another. And God now, Tower of Babel's in 2242, now 1,500 years later, 1,500 years later, after the Tower of Babel and God confusing the language, Israel is a nation. Israel actually... uh, has become a kingdom. Now they're a divided kingdom. And this word to the southern kingdom is that God is going to send a people to you to judge you, a people whose language you can't understand. You won't be able to understand what they say. It'll be a bunch of babble to you. Guess where those people come from? That's where they come from, the Babylonians. So think about this. And this is the way we should read history. And this is why it's important for us to study history. Now, we're going through this timeline and we're literally skipping over centuries. But guess what's happening in between those centuries? People are living. Babies are born. Men and women get married, have families. Tragedies happen. Blessings happen. People work hard. Hardship comes. Climate change. You know climate change is not a new thing. (laughs) Climate change has has been disrupting people's lives since the beginning. At least since the flood. I don't think it disrupted anything before the flood. But we have great evidence post flood that climate change is real. And it's been happening consistently in human history. And so as we're skipping across centuries here on the study of the timeline, we need to remember that people like you and I are living their lives every day, working hard, trying to provide for their families, praying to their gods, hopefully praying to the true and living God for their child or their wife or their loved one who is sick and suffering. I mean, this is, this is humanity. This is the human condition. And all along, though we're skipping through centuries on this timeline, God is present with His people. He is present on the ground in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their great blessing, in the midst of their great need. God is present with them, leading them, guiding them, providing for them, pouring out grace, yes, and even disciplining them and judging them in their sin. Because he loves them. And so here in Genesis we see this record of the beginning of this city. And throughout the biblical record we're going to see how this city, which becomes a kingdom and a world dominating empire, literally changes the history of the world and the history of God's people. And and they do that because God uses them to do that. And it all started 
after Noah and his sons got off the ark and repopulated the earth and people migrated to this plain of Shinar and a man named Nimrod built a city and God judged their sin there but even that judgment of sin God has used to achieve his purposes throughout the world because from there men were scattered God scattered men across the face of the earth and we talked about at the very same time this is happening while they're building the tower of Babel in the land of Sumer or in the plain of Shinar there is an ice age that is encompassing the globe and one third of the earth is covered in ice and the sea level has dropped and when God confuses their language and sends them out they're able to travel the roads that God made for them to go from Asia I mean, just look at a globe. To go from Asia to North America. How did they cross that ocean? God built a road through an ice age, through lower sea levels, so that men could cross over and go all the way down to the very tip of South America. God did that. God has been building roads from the beginning. Now... We don't think about the Ice Age, God building roads through an Ice Age, but that's exactly what he did. It's how people got to Australia. It's how people got to South America. It's how people got to England. It's how people got to all the parts of the earth. And this is what the record in Genesis says. From that point in Babel, God scattered man across the face of the earth. And man begins to migrate now in his own people groups. And what determines those people groups? They can understand one another. So all the people that could understand each other got together and they started repopulating. So here in Jeremiah, God uses a play on words concerning Babylon or Babel when he references this ancient nation. This nation goes all the way back to the generations that came off the ark whose language you do not know. The roots of this ancient nation go back to the Tower of Babel and the founding of Babylon by Nimrod on that plain of Shinar. Now, in Micah chapter 5, verse 6, Micah, who was a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom, he makes reference here he references Assyria and the land of Nimrod when he prophesies to both Judah, the southern kingdom, and to Israel, the northern kingdom, from the last half of the 8th century. So this is around 750 B.C. to 700 B.C. and 722 B.C. Assyria carried away captive the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Micah, when he's warning Israel and Judah of the coming judgment because they have turned away from the Lord, he mentions the land of Nimrod. He says there is a people. And actually this Micah chapter 5, God is pronouncing judgment on Assyria 
in Babylon. And this is what we see in the biblical record. God uses these heathen pagan nations, these kingdoms, to judge his people. You know, read the book of Daniel and the account of Nebuchadnezzar. It's a very interesting story how God, in his grace, uses Nebuchadnezzar, reveals himself to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but because Nebuchadnezzar was proud, and because Nebuchadnezzar didn't give God glory, but took the glory himself over what happened, God turned him into an animal, literally, and God eventually judges this kingdom. Because they were used by God to judge his people, but they enjoyed being an instrument of judgment too much. They took pleasure in killing and destroying. And because they took pleasure in that, God ultimately judges them. And that's what Micah actually is saying here. That God is going to ultimately deliver his people from the very kingdoms that God brought to bring his discipline upon them. And so Micah is prophesying this 1,500 years after Babylon was founded. Now, I think that's kind of interesting. We want to put that in perspective. Um, our address here is 1517. What's significant about 1517? Reformation. Reformation. So Reformation Day uh, happened on 1517. Uh, so some, since about 1569, I think they've been celebrating Reformation Day. On 1517, in 1517, Martin Luther posted his 95 Thesis on the church door in Wittenberg. So think about that. 1500 years ago, 500 years ago. Um, so this is 1500 years. So Martin Luther posts that. 1,517 years after the birth of Christ, we have the beginning of the Reformation, you might say. Well, what we have here is Micah is proclaiming God's word to a hard-hearted people. 1,500 years after God judges them, confuses their language and disperses them across the face of the globe so that they would do what? So that they would do what God told them to do in the beginning. Be fruitful, multiply, take dominion, and fill the earth. Fill it with what? Not just people, but specifically people or creations that are created in whose image? God's image. So when God said be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, it wasn't just about populating the earth with people. It was filling the earth with the image of God. And this is what the prophet says. There's coming a day when the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. When man, after the flood, was concentrated there on the plain of Shinar building his cities and building his tower in opposition to God, all having one language and one speech, and God saying, whatever they put their mind to, they can do. Because this is who God created. People with that kind of creative ability, with that kind of intelligence. 
And God comes down and he confuses their language and disperses them so that they would fill the earth. Fill it with what? Fill it with the image and the knowledge of God. And they weren't doing that. Now, think about Micah and think about Jeremiah about 1,500 years after Babel. Here you have God's prophet proclaiming God's word, chastising God's people because they're not obeying God's mandate. Instead, they're not just not obeying his mandate, but now they're worshiping false gods. And so what does God send 1,500 years after Babel? In a sense, he sends a reformation through his prophets. And that reformation came through pagan nations that were founded 1,500 years ago on that plain. And now God's using them to motivate his people to obey his word. 1,500 years after the birth of Jesus, what happens? Martin Luther comes and he innocently nails up his thesis. But God had another plan and another purpose. And God brought a reformation to his people to return back to the word of God and obey the word of God and carry out the mandate in the word of God, which is to disciple the nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. It's hard to do that when people can't read the Bible, when the Bible is written in a language that they don't understand. And so the church's perpetuation of keeping the Bible written in Latin, when you have a population that doesn't speak or read Latin, was perpetuating that disobedience to God. And what we see at Pentecost was a reversal of Babel. So now at Pentecost, when the Spirit comes, and men hear in their own languages, it's an exact reversal of what happened at Babel. And we're living now in that time where God wants people to understand so that the knowledge of the glory of God will continue to fill the earth until the Lord Jesus comes again. All right, so... From the tower of Babel, any thoughts about the tower or the city of Babel that turned into the kingdom of Babylon? And you see how God used that in history. Well, so how does Babylon affect us today? So you do realize that when Israel was divided, and so uh, the northern kingdom called Israel the ten tribes in the northern kingdom, they were carried away by the Assyrian Empire in about 722 B.C. And that was God's judgment because they had turned away and worshipped false gods. Then in 606 B.C., you know, and, what is that, 116 years later, after the Babylonians have defeated the Assyrians, now the Babylonians invade Jerusalem or the southern kingdom, Judah, Benjamin and Judah were the two tribes of the southern kingdom. 
And they invaded Jerusalem, carried away the choicest of people like Daniel in the first invasion. They didn't destroy the city. They didn't destroy the temple. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel are warning the Jews, destruction's coming because you're not obeying God. You're, you're rebelling against God. You're saying God's not going to leave the people there for 70 years. You're saying God would never do this, and so we're not going to submit to the Babylonians. Um, and so Jeremiah warns that God's going to send the Babylonians back, and they're going to destroy the temple and destroy the city and carry everybody away captive this time. And that's what happens. And so Israel is in captivity for 70 years. So... Um, so it, it's kind of hard to talk about history and not talk about how ancient history has impacted our world today. That's kind of the whole point of our study. So who... Okay, according to Jewish tradition, if you have ten men Ten qualified men who love God, what can you start in your city or your village or your community if you have ten men? A synagogue. Do you know where the synagogue system came from? The synagogue system was born out of the Babylonian captivity. You didn't have synagogues before because... You had a temple. And God had a system. He had the seven feasts at that time. The, the two feasts, the two additional feasts that, that Jews celebrate now were added post-exile, post post-captivity. Um, you know, but the original seven feasts, the first being Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, Rosh Hashanah or trumpets, uh, atonement, and tabernacles. And those seven feasts cover the entire calendar of the 12 month year. They come in very quick succession. So, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits happen within days of each other. And then Pentecost happens 50 days later. Then you have the long summer. And then in the fall of the year, you have trumpets. And then 10 days later, you have atonement. And then 15 days later, you have tabernacles. And the only one of those feasts that's a joyous celebratory occasion is tabernacles. And it's a seven-day feast plus one. It's really an eight-day feast. And so before the temple was destroyed, before Israel was carried away into captivity, three feasts out of those seven, Israel was commanded to appear before the Lord in the place in which his name would dwell forever. So this is what God tells Moses when the children of Israel are still wandering in the wilderness waiting for that generation to die. You do realize that's why they wandered 40 years. It was God's judgment. That generation that did not believe God, God 
basically sentenced them to death and said, you will wander for 40 years until every man old enough to go to war that came out of Egypt dies in this wilderness, and then I'll let you go into the promised land. So God gives Moses the law in Israel uh, to Israel in the wilderness. And three of those seven feasts that God gives to Israel in the law, three of those feasts, God says that you are required to appear, every male is required to, required to appear before me in the name in which I choose, in the place in which I choose for my name to dwell forever. Well, that eventually became where? It's not a trick question. Jerusalem. City of David. So when does Jerusalem become the capital of Israel? When David, when King David defeats the Jebusites and he takes Jerusalem and makes it the capital of Israel. It's called the city of David because David took it. It's David's city. And that is where Solomon, David's son, built the temple. Up until that time, they had a tent or a tabernacle. And inside that tent was the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. And so every year to celebrate these feasts, the priests would go. And one time a year at atonement, he would take the blood of a goat and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Only once a year would he go in there. And so Israel had a tabernacle that traveled with them everywhere they went. When they settled in the land, they set the tabernacle up in Shiloh. And then when David took Jerusalem, he brings the ark and the tabernacle to Jerusalem. And then his son Solomon builds a temple. And this is where they worship. And so there was not a need for a synagogue system because the children of Israel lived in the land of Israel. And the land of Israel was not real big. So they just traveled to Jerusalem to do what they needed to do. But when the Babylonian captivity came, well, two things, really. You have the Assyrian captivity or dispersion. And then you have the Babylonian. And so by the time Babylon is ruling the world, they're ruling the known world. And Jews are deported, not to just Babylon, but they're deported all over the Babylonian Empire. Well, what are the Jews going to do? They, there is no more temple because the temple was destroyed. But how do they worship their God? Well, they had God's word. They built or established synagogues, centers of worship, where they would come and they would read the word and they would go through the word of God and they would worship God as best they could without a temple. And this is how the synagogue system was established. It was born out of the Babylonian captivity and the dispersion of the Jews across the known world. And when, when the Jews returned back to Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah, and they led the Jews back, do you realize that the majority of Jews did not return to Jerusalem? There were Jews literally all over the world. And by this time, guess what they had in every city? They had a synagogue. They didn't call it a church. Jesus is the first person to use the word church as we know it. 
in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. It's recorded for us. I will build my church, my ecclesia, my assembly of called out people. But the church didn't start in the New Testament. The church started... Well, I, I believe the church started when God created Adam and Eve. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of you. There you have Adam and Eve and God right there in the garden. There's your church. Represented right there in the very first thing God created, which was the family. And so the church throughout history, throughout most of its history, leading up to the revelation of Christ was exclusively Jewish and you had to become conformed to Judaism to be a member of that church. So when Jesus says in John 3.16 God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life we hear that one way and I'm not saying we hear it the wrong way but a lot of people do hear it the wrong way but a Jew listening to Jesus say that would have heard that in a very different way than we would have heard that. A Jew might have heard Jesus say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. To the Jews listening to Jesus, there would have been some raised eyebrows. What? What did he just say? Whoever believes in him? Are you saying that if the Gentiles believe, they too will be saved? Yes, that's exactly what Jesus was saying. And that's exactly what the Jews understood, and that's exactly why the Jews had a problem with Jesus. Because the more Jesus talked, the more they realized that Jesus was saying that salvation is not just for the Jews, but it's for the whole world. And this is why Paul is dealing with Judaizers who are coming into the churches and saying, well, you're not really saved. It's okay. Yes, we believe in Jesus too, but you've got to become a Jew first. You've got to conform to the law of Moses before you're actually saved. You've got to keep the law and trust in Yeshua HaMashiach. Paul says, no. We're not justified by the works of the law. We're justified by faith alone. And, and you don't have to keep the law, and you don't have to be circumcised anymore. And so... You can read Acts 15 for yourself. That's the letter the church sent to the Gentile churches telling them you don't have to keep the law. But you should abstain from sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols in blood. What does that word sexual immorality mean? To the Jew, they understood exactly what it means. It's defined in five chapters of Leviticus and it includes most distinctly homosexuality, bestiality, adultery, uh, sex outside of marriage, all kinds of things. It was what's called the sexual code of Leviticus. It's the code the Jews lived by. And the reason Jesus didn't have to mention homosexuality specifically is the same reason he didn't have to mention bestiology or, or, or pedophilia specifically. Because the codes were lined out in great detail there in Leviticus. And Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. So that's why we include the Old Testament in our Bible today. And so what were they doing in synagogues? They were teaching the Word of God. They were teaching 
God's people, the Jews at that time, God's word from the Old Testament scriptures. And they didn't have a temple anymore, so they built synagogues everywhere they went. And the tradition of the Jews said that if you got ten qualified men, you can start a synagogue. Anywhere you are, it doesn't matter where you are. And guess what popped up all over the world? Synagogues. And what we call churches today are, are really, that system, that synagogue system is very similar. It, it basically is the precursor of what we have today in the church. We don't have a central temple that we go to. Muslims are required to go to Mecca at least once in their lifetime and make the pilgrimage and walk around the Kaaba and kiss the stone. They have to do that at least once in their life before they die to be a good Muslim, which means very good chance. No Muslim has assurance of salvation. Did you know that? That's part of their teaching. Allah is merciful, but you cannot know for sure that you're saved until you appear before him. And what they all know is if you don't make it to the Kaaba at least once in your life and walk around that black temple that was there long before Muhammad uh, had his visions and, and heard voices in his head that he didn't write down, but his, his friend wrote down for him long after his death. If you don't go there, you have no assurance of salvation. But you see, all the way back at the Tower of Babel, God confuses the language and disperses the people. And God maintains right there on the plain of Shinar a city called Babylon. That was just a city for many, many, many centuries. It's a very ancient city. But that city turned into a kingdom that God raised up. Because who is in charge of the rise and the fall of kingdoms? Well, God is. <laughs> And he still is today, whether we call them kings or presidents, whether we call them uh, council of elders or parliament or congress or house or senate. Guess who's in charge of all of that ultimately God is. And he uses those things to judge his people. And I think it's fair to say right now this, this nation is under judgment and the judgment is likely to become worse, not because the world is sinful, but because the church has turned away from the Lord and is not proclaiming the whole counsel of God. And because the church has adopted the ways of the world and just like Israel of old has gone after false gods, and what did God do to bring her back? from that little seed on the plain of Shinar called Babel, where they tried to build a tower. From that little seed, God built a world-dominating empire called the Babylonian Empire. He raised it up, and then he brought it crashing down on his people in 606 B.C., his people of Judah. And he brought them back again 20 years later and decimated the city and decimated the temple and decimated that population and carried them all away captive for 70 years. And then in his grace, he sent a remnant back to Jerusalem to rebuild that city and to rebuild that temple. 
And God knew exactly he would do that when he came down and he confused the language of the Tower of Babel and dispersed people all throughout the ends of the earth. And it took 15 centuries before one of the major purposes of that whole exercise that began on the plain of Shinar at Babel. It took 15 centuries for us to be able to see through history what God did and what he raised up to work in his people. And here we sit today learning the word of God, talking about the word of God, because God faithfully preserved his word and made a way where there seemed to be no way, and yet here we are now, not 15 centuries later, but I mean we are, we're 40, we're 45 hundred years later. We're 45 centuries later. Is that right? 45 centuries? Yeah, that's right. That's a long time. And so when you, when you read history, when you look at history, and this is why God gives us his word and records these things, because God's word shows us how he works in history. And, you know, we're, we're talking about 1,500 years, 4,500 years, but, but remember, those 1,500 years from Babel to, to the Babylonians coming to bring judgment to God's people in Judah... In those 1,500 years, I could do the math, but I won't do it. But there's, there's a day represented. Every, there's a day, every day for 1,500 years, people lived. Every day for 1,500 years, normal, regular, everyday people just like us were living their lives. And they had the same issues you and I have. They struggled with the very same physical and emotional issues. They struggle with the very same issues of how do I put food on my table? How do I provide a home for my family? What am I going to do to make sure that I have a future for my children and my grandchildren? They struggle with the very same things every single day. And while they were struggling every single day, some struggled trusting false gods, some struggled trusting the true and living God. But it didn't matter. God was there. And God was working. And it, it is much easier to go through the struggles, the tribulations of life that Jesus promises that we will have, knowing that history is his story. And we are part of his story. And that doesn't mean our names are going to get put in a history book. They won't. Our names don't have to be put in the history book. Because only God knows all the unknown names and unknown people that contributed to bringing about the people whose names we do know and whose lives we do read about in history books. We say, man, that man, that woman made a huge contribution to history. I'm a living benefactor of what they did in history. Well, that's great. But I want you to consider the hundreds of thousands of people that you'll never know. You don't know their names. You don't know anything about them. But God knows them. And he used them to bring that person about at that point in time in history 
to make what we call a significant difference. But I say to you, all of those nameless, faceless people that we don't know, only God knows, who are just trying to live their lives and trying to be faithful, those are the people that made a real difference. Because that person that we read about in history could not have existed, could not have done what they did without all the people that contributed to them being born and living their life. Couldn't have done it. And I say that so that you understand when we study history, the point of studying history is not so that you will learn about significant people in history. The point of studying history is so that you begin to understand how significant your life is. And it doesn't matter whether anyone knows your name or not. I mean, go down to the local bar if you want someone to know your name. You know? It doesn't matter if anybody knows your name or not. God knows your name. In fact, God created you. God created you to be you. God created you and put you right here on this earth at this time. God is in charge of the details. And he ordered all the details that make you who you are and has put you right where you are. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're on top of the world or if you feel like the world is, is sitting on top of you right now. It doesn't matter. Because we don't walk by our feelings. We walk by faith. We walk by faith in the Son of God. And when we read history, when we look at history, and we see how God has worked through the most mundane things, the most unexpected ways, with people who just happen to be at the right place at the right time. No, there's no such thing as happenstance. There's no such thing as luck. God commands our destiny, every detail of it. And that should give us hope. That should give us rest and peace. So that even when you make choices and you realize, man, I made a really bad choice. What do we know? And we know this, that God works all things together for good to those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. Now we can read that scripture and be tempted to, to picture God as this old man with a fire bucket running behind us, putting out fires. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. No, that's not who God is. God's not running behind us with a fire bucket, putting out fires. What we think was a wrong choice, what we think was a bad situation, and it might have been really bad, God already knew. How do we know that? We're not there in history yet, but we're getting closer. There's a guy named who? Joseph. Who? Wasn't, wasn't, his, wasn't his fault. He was a dreamer. He had dreams. And his dreams were so vivid and so disturbing, I believe, and so profound, he had to share those dreams. But every time he shared his dreams, he got in trouble. He didn't control his dreams. God gave him those dreams. And those dreams were so disturbing to his brothers that his brothers were going to murder him. But at the last moment, they decided, well, okay, we'll just sell him into slavery. And we'll let them do what we're too chicken to do. They sold Joseph into slavery thinking that they would never see him again. Thinking that he would die in his slavery as most people did. 
But the problem is, what they didn't know and what Joseph didn't know is that God had a plan in all of this. Fast forward 17 years when Joseph is now second in command in Egypt. And guess who shows up to get food because there's a famine in the world? His brothers. And Joseph sees them and he recognizes them, but Joseph, they don't recognize Joseph. Because they're thinking 17 years later, Joseph is long gone, he's long dead. And they had already put that episode behind them and moved on. And here's Joseph. And Joseph, in his wisdom and in divine providence, orders the events over a series of time, over a series of months, for his brothers to be brought face to face with the very one they sought to murder, the very one they thought they were rid of when they sold him into slavery in the middle of the desert. And now here he is, second in command, the second most powerful man in the world. That's our brother. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. No. You know what the brother said? What Joseph said, what you meant for evil, what, what's, what's the rest of it? God, huh? God meant for good. Now, what, the way we want to read that is, the way we want to understand that is, what you meant for evil, God was able to work for good. N no, that's not what the scripture says. What you meant, what you will, what you willfully did to me for my demise, because you hated me, you murdered me. Remember, that's what Jesus said. You just say to your brother, you fool, you've committed murder in your heart. So those brothers didn't actually plunge a knife into Joseph and kill him, though they wanted to. They really did. They murdered him. And he said, what you meant for evil, God meant. For good. In other words, God gave me those dreams. God meant for you to hate me. God meant for you to seek to murder me. God meant for you to sell me into slavery. God meant it because God brought me to this place so that I could save your life. In saving Joseph's, in Joseph saving his brother's lives, who else did Joseph save? Israel. Who? Israel. He saved the world. Because in Judah, the very one who wanted to murder his brother, isn't that ironic? Judah's the one that wanted to murder Joseph the worst. And in Judah, and from Judah would come who? The Savior of the world. And God meant for Joseph to go through. We can't even imagine the hardship Joseph goes through. And that was just the beginning of it. He went through lots of hardship in his 17 years living as a prisoner in the dungeons of Egypt. But Joseph kept rising like cream. He kept rising to the top. Because God had a plan and a purpose. And God had always purposed to bring him to that place. So that he could save the world. So that he could save Judah, the very brother who wanted to kill him. Because from Judah would come the Savior of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now there was someone else who, who understood some things. Maybe not fully. But... Who was the first prophecy of the coming Christ spoken to? Remember in Genesis 3.15? Spoken to? The serpent, the enemy. So he's known all along that there is one coming who's going to put me down. Who's going to defeat me. And so he had been working and is still working. 
futile is his work because Jesus has already defeated him. But you see, when we're in the midst of his story, suffering the hardship that life brings, it's hard for us to understand what God's doing. And it's not that we need to understand what God's doing. We just need to trust. And we need to understand that God is doing something. And it doesn't matter if the enemy meant it for evil. God means it for good. It doesn't matter what happens to us in this life. It doesn't matter even if we make unwise, horrible choices. God knows how to take lemons and make lemonade. God knows how to take those things that are bad and work them together because that's what he is doing in his story. This is what history is about. And so the whole time we're reading all of this stuff about Babel and Babylon and Babylonians and and you know we go on and then in 2188 you realize in BC we're counting down to zero. So 2234, the city of Babel or Babylon is founded. In 2188, the land of Egypt. Oh, another important place in history. The land of Egypt is populated by Mizram and his people. Who's Mizram? He's a son of Ham. So about this time, Mizram, the son of Ham, led his colony into Egypt. And thus, Egypt... Is Mizram is the Hebrew word for Egypt. So the, the Hebrews call Egypt Mizram. It's called the land of Mizram or the land of Ham. And Mizram is Hebrew for, it's the Hebrew word for Egypt. And according to Herodotus, and who's Herodotus? Herodotus is called the father of history because Herodotus took it upon himself to write not just the history of, of his people, and all the people who won the wars, but the, also the history of his enemies and the people who lost the wars. And according to Herodotus, and another historian I've never heard of, uh, and I, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name right now, Misram was known as Menas, or Men, and he is the first king of the Egyptians. Interesting, the Pharisees would boast that they are sons of ancient kings, and that's why, because it was the son, it was Ham, Ham's descendant, the son of Ham, who established Egypt and was the first king of Egypt, a, des a descendant of Noah. Now, we won't go into this tonight, but now you just think about Egypt. We just talked about Moses, I mean uh, Joseph. And the whole story of Joseph leads us up to what happening. Joseph's reunited with his father, who's still alive, and his younger brother, and the family, big family reunion. And what does Joseph do? He goes back and he says, bring my father and your households and move to the land of Egypt. And you'll have the choicest of land, and you'll be taken care of here because there is yet still three more years of famine. And so he moved, and Joseph and the children of Israel 
moved to Egypt. And Pharaoh was thrilled. Pharaoh loved Joseph. Pharaoh loved, loved Jacob. But guess what? Things change. And the Pharaoh who loved Joseph and loved Jacob died. And the next Pharaoh didn't love him so much. And then, the rest of the story we'll get to later on in history. The children of Israel spend over 400 years in slavery in Egypt. Living as slaves, living harsh, harsh lives. And all that started when God sent the descendant of Ham to Egypt. When he dispersed man across the globe. And God knew what would be raised up there in Egypt. Because who raised it up? God raised it up. God raised up the pharaohs. God raised up the kingdom, the empire of the Egyptians. That predates the Babylonians and the Assyrians. In 2056, as we count down, Terah, the father of Abram, leaves Ur. Where is Ur? Ur was a city of the Chaldees. Ur was a city in Sumer. Ur was a city between the Tigris and the Euphrates River on the plain of Shinar in what we call the Fertile Crescent or what the Greeks called Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers. It is called the Cradle of Civilization. And Ur was, history tells us, a city filled with mathematicians and astronomers. This is where the wise men lived. And it's not an accident that when Jesus is born, it's wise men from this region. This is where these wise men came from. They came because they knew the star was prophesied. To, to come. And they were looking for the star because that's what they did. They were astronomers. They studied the star. They studied the movements. That's why they had calendars that were very accurate. That's why they, they knew the movement of planets and the solar system. They were wise men. And those, those people from Ur, where Terra lived, where he left from, they were also pagans. And so God calls Terra, and God calls Abram out of that pagan land, and he says, leave that land and go to a land I will show you. 19, excuse me, 1996 B.C., Abram is born, who will one day become Abraham, father of many nations. Ten years later, in 1986, a little girl is born by the name of Sarai, who would then later become Abram's wife, who would, who would live many, many decades childless, and would not until her 90th year of life bear her first child who lived with the reproach of being childless for 90 years. Yeah, what do you think about that? She, she did the very same thing you just did. She laughed. Because she knew she was 90 years old. How am I going to have a baby? My womb is dried up. I'm 90 years old. 
She did. <laughs> Thus they named the child Isaac, which means, who knows? Laughter. That's right. And then in 1922, not A.D., but B.C., God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to a land that he would show him. And so Abram leaves Ur in Mesopotamia. He leaves behind the pagan worshipers and he follows the call of his God. And we'll leave it right there tonight with Abraham leaving Ur of the Chaldees in our timeline of history. So just, um, just very quickly, if we go to uh, if we go to that little uh, handout I gave you on the first Wednesday, and I, I'm happy. Uh, in fact, um, if we get your email, if we don't have your email, Caleb can email this document out to you. But just to look at. Uh, they have Abraham's birth here as 2166. Uh, relatively speaking, you know, we're close on the timeline, but we're using we're using ushers, uh, and usher uses the biblical dating system, and so usher puts Abraham's birth at 1996 BC. But but just on the bottom of that timeline, <coughs> if you just look there. <coughs> Some of the things, so in 2300 B.C., um, horses are domesticated, chickens are domesticated. So you wonder, what did chickens used to do before they just ran around your yard eating bugs and the scraps you throw out? Well, they were wild animals, but how, why aren't, why aren't there any wild chickens anymore? I mean, I know I, I know you mentioned feral chickens, but in a sense, uh, those are the exceptions and not the rules. Um, just like there's feral hogs. You know where feral hogs come from? They're just tame hogs that got loose from someone's enclosure, uh, and, and now they've become wild and repopulated. Well, feral chickens do the same thing. But it was the Egyptians who domesticated horses and chickens back around 2300 B.C. So by the time Abram leaves um, Ur of the Chaldees, there have already got domesticated chickens in Egypt. Uh, I'm sorry, chickens domesticated in Babylon, uh, horses domesticated in Egypt. Bows and arrows, uh, 2100 B.C., they're making glass in Mesopotamia. And we know this because we're digging it up. So this is why evolutionists don't like this because when you actually, it's called black archaeology, they're digging up things that they have no explanation for. You know, on, the, on King Nebuchadnezzar's, today in our... In my fifth grade history, we studied the epic of Beowulf. And if you've never read Beowulf, you should read Beowulf because Beowulf actually presents a Christian worldview. Beowulf presents a narrative that's very consistent with the creation narrative. 
Because Beowulf is, though it's an epic poem, I always say that wrong, they make fun of me. My kids make fun of me because I say poem. 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 Huh? Anyways, you know what I'm talking about. In that epic called Beowulf, if you don't know the story, there's this monster that eats, you've probably seen the movie, but maybe you've never read it. This monster eats 31 Danish guys sitting in a dining hall. And, and, and so the Danes send word across the street, the sea, to Sweden, to Beowulf, uh, this, this guy who they think can take care of this monster. Beowulf brings 14 of his men, and they come and they face Grendel, the monster. But Beowulf doesn't fight him, you know, with, with a sword. Beowulf wrestles him. And Beowulf pulls his arm off. And Grendel retreats to his swamp and bleeds out and dies. Then Grendel's mama comes, and then Beowulf kills her too. And then uh, he becomes the hero to the Danes. He goes back to Sweden and becomes king of the Geats and rules for 50 years. Do you know that Danish and Swedish history, this is Danish and Swedish history. So the places, the names, the people, it's all part of Danish and Swedish history. The only part that we don't want to believe is that he fought a monster. And, and then when he got back to Sweden, there was a dragon terrorizing the Geats. And so he fights the dragon, him and his friend, who knows what his friend's name was. If you've read the, uh, uh, the, the Dragon Tooth uh, series, you'll, this name will appear in there. His friend's name was Wiglaf. And Wiglaf and Beowulf fight the fire-breathing dragon. They kill it by cutting it in two, but Beowulf is mortally wounded across his throat. Do you know that, who knows when dinosaurs were discovered by man? Huh? Yeah. yeah, no, but modern man. 1848, the first dinosaur bones were dug up. 1848, but do you know that there is, there are structures thousands of years old that have intricate carvings of dinosaurs. How did they know what those dinosaurs looked like? Do you know, how, the reason I got to this whole thing, on the gates, on the Ishtar gate to the city of Babylon was carved a fire-breathing dragon. Why would King Nebuchadnezzar have a fire-breathing dragon carved on the Ishtar gate? Maybe because fire-breathing dragons were a real thing at one point in time. Because there is countless literature from China, Japan, and medieval Europe. St. George, a real saint, is said to have delivered a whole village from a fire-breathing dragon he lived between 250 and 300 A.D. St. George killed the fire-breathing dragon, saved the village, preached the gospel, discipled people, led them to Christ. But he was a dragon slayer too. Oh, you know, that's just some weird legend. But yet we do have bombardier beetles who spit fire because they have a chemical reaction that causes... Uh, uh, a substance that's 212 degrees Fahrenheit emitted from their body that would take care of about any bug they're trying to deal with. So imagine a dinosaur-sized dragon that could have something similar to a bombardier beetle. Is it possible? It's possible. 
That's what Beowulf is about. Huh? The bombardier beetles died in the flood. Start, start an argument. Oh, they, oh, they oh. Were, they were on the Grand Sand and Gabriel River in the 60s, and now it's flooded. They're fun to play with. Yeah, see? Yeah, they still exist today. Yeah. Um, and and uh, also, around this time, the earliest known drug was discovered. It's called ethyl alcohol to relieve pain. So lots of things happening throughout history. Because what is history? It is simply his story. All right, any questions? Any comments? Yes, sir. When the light, you know how you talked about the funnel? And they narrowed it down to where almost man died and all that stuff? Uh-huh. Did they ever figure out a date to that time, to that year? Oh yeah, their dates are like hundreds of thousands of years ago because all their dates are skewed. You know, um, how do you have, uh, anyways, so, so let's start there next week as we continue. That's a great question.